In January of 1997, I received a check in the mail for $1,600 from an anonymous donor. It was an extravagant gift, and it came out of nowhere, quite honestly. There was no name attached to the check, no return address, just a check made out to me for $1,600. And there in the memo line of the check was the reference 1 Peter 5.7. Now, some of you wondering what 1 Peter 5.7 says, uh, Peter writes this. He says, cast all your cares on the Lord because he cares for you. Uh, this word from Peter was like a warm blanket on a cold winter night, right? It was an invitation to receive, to receive a gift, uh, this gift of a check for $1,600. Now, friends, to this day, I still can't confirm who gave that money, but, but I do have a pretty good idea. He's a member of the church that my parents attended while I was at the university, and he was an incredibly successful businessman uh, who retired in his early 40s. Uh, he was warm, he was approachable, he was down to earth, he was humble, and yes, he was incredibly wealthy, but he was also a man who was working hard to orient his life around the words and the ways of Jesus. And when I asked my dad about this man and why he would do such a thing, my dad said something that was both, I think, simple and profound. He said something like, you know, uh, he, he's probably just experienced God's blessings, and so he can't help but be generous. Well, having experienced God's extravagant giving, this man became an extravagant giver. Now, in 2011, I received a turkey in a box, a live turkey in a box. It also was an extravagant gift, and it came out of, came out of nowhere. Again, no name attached to the turkey in the box, no return address, just a live turkey in a box, along with, along with the largest smiles worn across the faces of all those who were gathered there that day, sitting on the dirt floor of the church. And I admit, this was not, this was not a warm blanket on a cold winter evening. This was confusion while we desperately held on to the feet of the turkey as he flapped his wings as much as possible. It was, friends, it was an extravagant gift, a gift from a small village in the hills of Rwanda. And our guide told us later that the village had pooled just enough money to buy the turkey and to provide it as a gift to the Mzungu, the, the white people who had brought them the Word of God. It was a, a sacrificial offering of the village in response to God's Word. It's interesting, while they didn't have much, they had been receivers of God's lavish grace and love. They were recipients of God's extravagant riches, and they too couldn't help but be generous. See, having experienced God's extravagant giving, they became extravagant givers. Probably more than that, they became extravagant livers. You know, today, today we're beginning a three-week series called Extravagant Giving, 
where we're going to explore, one, the foundation for the discipline of giving. We'll look at why giving should, quote, hurt a little bit, and finally, what it means then to live lives of extravagance. And all of this culminates on November 13, the Sunday that, that we set aside as a church when we commit, when we commit our extravagant lives uh, to God. On that day, we will, as a church, place commitment cards on the altar as an act of worship. There we'll lay before him not only our hearts, but our lives, and yes, our finances. Friends, it is a profound moment in the yearly cycle of our faith family. And every time I watch our church family come up into this chancel and place those commitments on the altar of God, I'm overcome by the sheer audacity of God's extravagance. But first things first, our giving, our giving needs to come from the right Place. And so today, today we're going to explore that foundation for the discipline of giving. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump right into that reading, which we heard Lois read just moments ago from Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus. So if you want to follow along, you'll want to grab a Bible and let's get to Ephesus, Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse three, Ephesians chapter one, starting at verse three. There are Bibles in the pew. You can use a digital one. That's fine. And for those of you who are walking with us at the adult Bible study, this, this will be a familiar opening prayer to you, uh, but it probably feels like a millennia ago since we talked about that in the adult study, so it's going to be worth the revisit this morning. See, Paul, Paul is writing a general letter of theology to the house churches in Ephesus, and he's using this letter to both inform and encourage. So he's using this letter to do two things, to inform, but also to encourage the saints, those in faith in the churches of Ephesus, to encourage them in the two parts of faith. That first part of faith, that first part of faith is, of course, God's saving work in Christ Jesus. How it is God the Father has brought us back into a relationship with himself through that work of Christ. And the second part of faith then, and the second part of Ephesians really is how we then live that faith out in the world. So Paul, Paul's trying to inform and encourage the saints there in Ephesus, both by rehearing the gospel and how God brought us into relationship, but also what it looks like then to live that faith out. But all of it, both parts, both parts of the book of Ephesians begin actually with a litany of praise. Praise that is directed to the God who creates and who saves and who sustains. And we start here, interestingly, we start here because within that litany of praise is the foundation, it is the foundation for what follows not only in the book of Ephesians, but it is the foundation for our discipline of giving as well. So here we go. We're going to go to chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what it reads. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
And in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with both his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which, by the way, he has freely given us in the one he loves. Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. So let's stop there for just a second and go back. God has blessed us with what? Not rhetorical, actually asking, what has he blessed us with? Every spiritual blessing. In other words, another way he says, there are no more blessings that God can give to you. He's given all of it, everything he has, every bit, every little bit. He has given every period, spiritual period, blessing period. He has given it all. And not only that, not only that, looking here, he has, Paul says, since before the beginning of the world. Now, just wrap your minds around that. From before the world was even spoken into existence, before the world was even begun, God desired, Paul says, to make us, to make you and me holy and blameless. And from the beginning, Paul says, from the very beginning, it was God's desire to call us daughters and sons. This is, Paul says, God's will and his pleasure. Now, sometimes if we read too fast, we miss that, that it gives God the Father great pleasure to call you a daughter and a son. In fact, Paul goes on, God the Father has given us, he says, redemption, forgiveness. No, he's, he's lavished redemption and forgiveness upon us. Now, i got to be honest, lavish is not a word that I use kind of in everyday language. Though, though I, I think uh, from this point on, I may. Lavish is really a wonderful word. It means to give more than necessary or reasonable. To give more than necessary or reasonable. You know, I loved, I loved going to my grandparents' house because when, when breakfast rolled around, grandma lavished bacon upon her grandkids. You see, in the house that I grew up in, each of us kids, me and my two sisters, we were apportioned a small bit of bacon. We were allowed one and one half piece. No more, no less. That's what you got, one and one half piece. But when you went to grandma's house, grandma lavished bacon. She just kept making bacon until you yourself rolled around like the pig it came from, right? Like you, you were just lavished by her when it came to all things pork, right? She gave more than necessary or reasonable. And God, Paul says, has lavished upon us. He's given more than necessary or reasonable. He's lavished upon us his redemption and his forgiveness. These lavish gifts of God actually began at the beginning of time. Way back in the book of Genesis, in the book of the beginnings, there in the Garden of Eden, 
God gave an entire garden to our foreparents. They were gifted the food of any tree but one. They were given the joy of the Father's presence every day as he walked in the cool of the garden. And there at that time, in that place, there was no sickness, no disease, no pain, no suffering, and no tears. God had given a lavish life to Adam and Eve. And yet what they did with those gifts would become a problem, not only for them, but for the rest of humanity as well. See, Adam and Eve squandered those gifts in an act of rebellion as they sought gifts that were outside of the Father's provision. And so the gift of the garden and that lavish life were stripped away from Adam and Eve. And from that point on, there has been toil and trouble, sin and brokenness, pain and death. Now in the years that followed that falling away, God the Father would show hints of his lavish giving. There in those early stories of Genesis, we hear of God's encounter with a man named Abram and his wife Sarai, who at the time, who at the time had no children. But God promised to them that he would give them descendants beyond the number of the stars in the sky, descendants beyond the number of the grains of sand on the seashore. And though Abram and Sarai were beyond the years of childbearing, God would pour out his extravagant gifts in a baby boy named Isaac. And so there, Abraham and Sarah were receivers of God's extravagant giving. And in response, In response to those extravagant gifts, Abraham would offer Isaac as a sacrifice on a hill outside of town. He would, when asked, return those gifts to the Lord. See, Abraham, having experienced God's extravagant giving, he himself would become an extravagant giver. There's this beautiful moment in that story of Abraham and Isaac as they're walking up the mountain. As Abraham, both in his mind and his heart, is preparing to sacrifice his son, there's this beautiful question that's asked in such innocence from Isaac when he simply asks, Say, Dad, like, where's the lamb? Where is the animal that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham's response to his little boy is, again, simple and yet profound. He says, God will provide. You can imagine the moment there as Abram is at the top of that mountain, really strapping his son to an altar so that with a knife he could strike him and kill him and return him to the Lord. And it's only a few breaths from that moment that a messenger of the Lord stops Abraham short and directs his gaze to a thicket that's not far away where there in that thicket is a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place. God continues to prove that he is an extravagant giver. 
You know, God would go on from that story of Abraham and Isaac into the people of Israel, and he would go on to provide honey from a rock, water from a stone, manna from the ground, all for the people of Israel as they wander their way in the desert to the promised land, to a land that God had showed Abram so many decades before. And he would continue to give to the people of Israel that honey and that water and that manna, even though God's people were grumbling. God lavished his gifts on his people in spite of their own frustration. Beyond those moments, he would give prophets, men and women who proclaimed God's word in order to bring the people of Israel back into the way of God. He gave them the gift of those prophets so that they would know that their life was out of bounds and what it meant to return to the Lord in repentance, to once again hear the favor of God, those prophets, a gift of God himself. Now, if we walked through the entirety of the Old Testament, we would see again and again and again and again that God is an extravagant giver. But all of that extravagance, all of that lavish giving, all of that giving beyond necessity and beyond what's reasonable would find itself when God would give his one and only son, Jesus, who like the prophets of old would proclaim the way of God and would help all people see what it means to live a life of repentance and faith. The same Jesus who would be honey for God's people, who would be the food of God's people, would be the drink of God's people. When Jesus himself says, I am in me is the spring of life and the spring of water. And if you have it, if you drink it, you will have life everlasting. That same Jesus that God gives, sacrificed on a hill outside the city, offered back to his father, so that you and I, by that death and its resurrection and its incension and power, so that you and I might be receivers of God's immeasurable riches, His extravagant grace, His lavish redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. See, when we read this prayer from St. Paul too quickly, we miss this lavish giving of God. We miss it in the person of Christ Jesus. That this lavish giving which we receive in Christ is the foundation for a life of giving. You know, God doesn't cease to provide in extravagant ways. He continues to provide for you and me. He continues to pour out his immeasurable riches. He continues to lavish on us, not bacon, but his goodness. You know, it's interesting today, this afternoon, there will be 11 young people who will confirm their faith, who today will say that this faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this work of Christ to reconcile me back to God, that that faith is my faith. It's what I believe. Friends, that, that faith was begun in a gift of baptism. When those same 11 confirmands were buried in the waters of baptism, in the water and the word, when they were marked with Christ the crucified, when they were called daughters 
and sons. God did something extravagant in those waters. Today, you and I will we'll come to the table and we'll receive again in our hands and in our mouths things that seem so simple, a little wafer and a small glass of wine. And yet in a mysterious and a miraculous way, there in that bread, with that bread, under that bread, there in, with and under that wine is Christ Himself. Here at the table, again this morning, you and I will be receivers of God's extravagant gifts. Here again this morning, He will lavish on you the redemption that was won for us in Christ Jesus. Here again, He will lavish on you and me the forgiveness of sins. God is an extravagant giver. And friends, when we receive those extravagant gifts, we then become extravagant givers. You know, I, th- I think back to that $1,600 check. I think back to the faithfulness of a man who gave out of his wealth. But I also think about that turkey in a box for a village who gave out of their poverty. And whether we're talking about the man or the village, both gave extravagantly. Both lavished gifts, why? Because they had had an experience with God's lavish gifts. So friends, as we continue through this series, Extravagant Giving, as we think about our own giving, we have to begin in the right place. Our giving is rooted in the giving of God in Christ Jesus. It is rooted in His lavish and extravagant gifts. So that, friends, we can begin to explore what it means to give in a way that hurts just a little, and what it means to live a life of extravagance. So may God empower us by His Holy Spirit to that end today and every day. Amen? Amen. And may now, may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.